When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I am really excited to finally bring to you Seth Godin. If you don't know who he is, he is a prolific daily blogger and author. Some of his most well-known books are Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. And he's here to talk with me about his latest book, The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. And if you're familiar at all with his linchpin book, it's as if that book was about being indispensable on an individual level. But Song of Significance is like a companion piece to that book about how to work together as a team of linchpins. This is truly a book to be read as a team and then have discussions about to plan action steps that come out of that discussion. It's a book that facilitates coming together to build a better team or organization or business that empowers and trusts everyone to deliver their best work. And that is definitely something as he describes the problem and offers discussion for solutions to those problems that you will find in this book, Song of Significance. So I'm just going to get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Seth Godin. Well, this week, it is my privilege and honor to welcome to the show, Seth Godin. Seth, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. What a treat. And it's got to be tough being in your line of work because every time you goof off even a little bit, you feel like a hypocrite. Oh, I know. Yeah. Well, I just make an excuse as to why binge watching Netflix is a productive exercise of some sort. And I won't even go there, but like there's ways to justify everything. So it's research. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Research. And I got to say, going through the book, the brand new book, I mean, I was already well into it and I was caught off guard and pleasantly surprised because any book that can reference the movie Office Space in a kind of poignant and meaningful way is all right with me. So teaser for that as people jump into the new book. When I recorded the audio book, I wanted the quotes to not be in my voice. So I actually watched that scene about 10 times. And it's even more poignant than you remember. Yeah. I mean, I am of the age that that movie came out near the end of my college career, and it kind of broke my brain a little bit as we got started into the real world, so to speak. So Exactly. And honestly, that's kind of the point of your new book, The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. And honestly, you kicked the book off saying that we don't need you to tell us this, but that if we've been paying attention work isn't working. So what do you mean by that? What's so obvious that we should know this already? So who invented the to-do list to begin with? Where did this whole mindset productivity come from? And why do we all accept that it's real? And the answer is it's only 120 years old. Frederick Taylor, 
changed the world with his work with the stopwatch. He met Henry Ford. And the two of them figured out that if you could treat people like a resource, hence the term human resources, and make that machine more productive, you could make more money. And the assembly line, I mean, it paved the earth. It made us all rich. It changed the way we do everything, what we wear, what we eat, all the things that we do in just a hundred years. And because it's so pervasive and so rewarding, we invited it into school and we built an entire mindset around being more efficient cogs in the industrial system. And I had trouble complaining about that 40 years ago because I had nothing but fun jobs to do. And if the ditch diggers were stressed because of the steam shovel, well, that wasn't my problem. And the argument in the book is that the stopwatch comes for all of us. And with chat GPT and outsourcing and everything else, the stopwatch is coming for everyone. So what are you going to do about it? You can either become a cheaper, faster version of a computer, or you can become a human. And those are the only two choices. You talk about there being a choice that we all need to make, and that basically comes in the form of showing up in our own way. What do you mean by showing up in our own way? Well, you can race to the bottom or you can race to the top. And racing to the bottom is very satisfying because if you're winning, you have a lot of customers. If you're the most prolific, productive freelancer, you won't run out of customers. The problem with the race to the bottom, though, is that you might come in second, that you could find yourself in this thing of giving up whatever you stand for just to become a better cog. What it means to show up in your own voice is to say, there really isn't an easy replacement for me. What I'm going to do here cannot be done by a mechanical Turk. What I'm going to do for you cannot be easily backed on Upwork and done by someone who charges one-tenth as much as I do. Everything that we've been taught goes against doing that. But the people we admire and the people who are successful, that's exactly what they do. Miles Davis did not play covers. Miles Davis played Miles Davis. I couldn't help but, as I was going through the book, feel like there were echoes of one of your previous, well, multiple previous books. Sure. One in particular, Lynchpin. Do you see that bleeding into this conversation a bit? Oh, a, a ton. Lynchpin is one of my most successful books. And what it said is the worker has a choice and the worker can show up as the irreproducible, valuable entity. And what this book says is let's get real or let's not play. So we need to have a conversation with each other and with our boss that what I heard from people who were inspired by Lynchpin is, I love this. My boss won't let me. I don't know what to do. And what this book says is, there's a copy here for your boss. There's a copy here for your employees. There's a copy here for your coworkers, because now all of us have to make this choice. So let's figure out what this place is like. You know, so you know really well how badly Steve Ballmer wrecked Microsoft. And, you know, Ballmer intentionally missed five of the most important revolutions of the tech world during a 10-year period of time. He missed the internet, he missed search, and go on the list. His successor, Satya Nadella, has built a human institution, not a bullied institution. His successor has said, we want linchpins around here. We're not going to count lines of code committed per day. We're not going to race to the bottom. We're not going to try to build a cheaper version of Google. We're going to do something better, different, more human. And it's worked. And that's like for a giant company, but it also works for a little chocolate company and everything in between. So my argument is everyone is now starting to notice that 
There are no safe jobs where you are told what to do. I couldn't help but think that linchpin was kind of an individualized, you are a linchpin. And yeah, if you can get other people on board with that, great. But when I go through so many different books for this show over the course of how many years now, it's always come back to, yeah, but how do I get my boss on board with this? What I think is unique and very interesting here with the Song of Significance is that I think the pump has been primed enough now, finally, and you're calling attention and pointing to something that we're all more aware of, finally, and something could be done. That's exactly right. What's happening between quiet quitting, mass resignations, people working from home, more people becoming freelancers, is that the bosses are starting to miss it when the linchpins leave. That the bosses had been counting on this non-industrial output. You know, a friend of mine is a doctor. She works for Kaiser Permanente and they're destroying her and she's not going to stay. And the reason is because it's still too important to her to be a great doctor, that she's not willing to just be a computerized cog in the machine. And the challenge with productivity and the hacks that we bring to it is we might be measuring false proxies and The idea of false proxies, I'm guessing, resonated with you as you read it, and I'd love to explore how we can bring a money ball kind of thinking to getting our work done. Well, one, you're mentioning yet another movie that I love, Moneyball. And two, yes, false proxies is on my list of notes here, so let's just jump right there. Let's define that a little bit and then talk about like unpacking that and what that really means in this context. Right, so if you're a lazy basketball scout, hiring just tall players is probably a decent hack. But if you are looking for people who are good at writing, hiring 35-year-old white men is not a good hack because that is not a useful proxy for whether they're good at their job. As we've added stopwatches to so many things we do, we have been measuring the things that are easy to measure. So there are plenty, you know, Groupon I just read is worth 99% less than it was worth when it went public. And all along the way, hardworking people tried to measure things that they thought were important And they measured their way to the basement because the things that are actually going to make an organization valuable aren't necessarily things that are easy to measure. Even in our personal lives, if you are measuring clicks and links and friends and likes, well, the problem is those people aren't really your friends and they don't really like you. You're just using a proxy that was served up to you by Mark Zuckerberg to make him money, not to make you happy. So if we're going to keep track of how many words per day we wrote and posted, I got news for you. I got a piece of software here that can write a hundred times more words per you than you per day. Bad proxy, not helpful. And a long time ago, I had chances to become more famous. They asked me if I would be a judge on Shark Tank, for example. And I was like, I don't even want to go to the screen test because I'm not measuring how many people know who I am. I'm measuring how many lives did I manage to make a difference in. And being on Shark Tank won't make that number go up. It'll make it go down. I can imagine (laughs) some of the pitches that you would turn down (laughs) on Shark Tank. Sorry, that's just a kind of a humorous picture I have in my head there. One of the things that I'm interested in is you start the book off talking about three different songs, really. The song of increase, the song of safety, and then the song of significance. Curious if you could unpack a little bit. I know this is backtracking, but, you know, it's kind of the how we got here. It's the setting up of the context with the song of increase and the song of safety. I'm not sure it's backtracking. It's really important context to understand this human problem 
can be understood by looking at non-human things. So I learned about the song of increase from Jacqueline Freeman, who named it, wrote a book about it. A hive of bees at the end of a long winter is likely to have not even survived. But if they did survive, it's because they ate all their honey. That's what the honey is for. The purpose of a hive is not to make honey. The purpose of the honey is to enable the hive. And I think the same thing might be true of money. And at the end of that winter, if they have made it, the Council of Maidens that organizes and runs the hive may decide it's time to leap forward. And in something that's truly magical, organized without an organizer, led without a leader, the hive will shift into overdrive, replenish its honey supply. The queen will lay and fertilize a new queen egg. Then, weather permitting, in a 10-minute period of time, 15,000 bees will swarm out of the hive. Every adult, including the queen, will just leave, leaving behind all the honey, all the babies, the new queen. They'll just leave. And now they have three days to find a place to live. And if they don't, and if it rains in between, they're just all going to die. And this leap into the void is just so thrilling. It's thrilling to listen to. It's thrilling to consider. It enables bees to evolve. And when we think about bees, there is no bee that is the hive. The hive is all the bees, just like neurons are our brain. And when we think about what happens when the bees leave, they end up in this tree and they form a tight ball. And I'm naming that the song of safety, where they are singing, humming, vibrating to stay warm. Human beings aren't bees, but what we yearn for is significant. To do work that matters, to do something we thought we couldn't do, to be treated with respect, to be part of something. And for a hundred years, we traded that for junk, for stuff we can put in our closet, for a false sense of security. And a lot of the ills in our common psychology are due to the fact that the prizes have slowed down. So if we're not being seduced by the prizes, we look at how we're spending our days at work, having lost loved ones during the pandemic and maybe even rushed with death ourselves. We're saying, that's it? And my argument is, no, that's not it. It was never it. This is it, to be a human. We find ourselves at this common place, all of us, having all gone through that kind of leaping moment in 2020. And now we're here in 2023 and we're still kind of processing and unpacking it all. And I think what it comes down to is is we're realizing that for the past three years, some of us have had this paralyzing fear of, you know, in trying to reach for some sort of safety anywhere we can get it. And we're finding that the things we used to cling to for that, you know, you reach for it and it's, it's flimsy and it breaks or it's, you know, it just, it doesn't ring true if we go with the song metaphor. So. Right. That's exactly right. And what happens is, so I interviewed 10,000, surveyed 10,000 people in 90 countries. And I said, what's the best job you ever had and why? And if you talk to some evil billionaire, they will say, well, what people want is to get paid a lot and not work very hard. But no one picked those two things on my list. Almost everyone said, I accomplished more than I thought I could. People treated me with respect. And I got to work with others who inspired. Well, why don't we do that again? What's keeping us from doing that again? One of the ways that you put it in the book is that you know, once we get past those basic needs being met, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all of that, workers in your survey, they're clear about what they really want. And you call this out. They want agency and they want 
dignity. And in the capitalist, you know, industrial revolution based model that we've been in, in for so long now, last 120 years, those aren't things that are part of that, really. They've been added on to and augmented mm-hmm. ad hoc for years now, more recently, but again, still don't necessarily occur there, which I think is probably why we've seen slowly and surely an uptick in entrepreneurship for so long. Exactly. And some key words that are worth decoding here. Managers and leaders are different. Managers use power and authority to get people to do what they want. We need them, but they're different than leaders who seek volunteers and explore the liminal space between here and there. They make a change happen. And I think we also have to understand the difference between an entrepreneur and a freelancer. I'm a freelancer and proud of it, right? Like you're looking at the entire staff of my organization. An entrepreneur is a very special kind of business person who uses other people's money to build something bigger than themselves that makes them money when they sleep that they can sell one day. And I think what's happening is a lot of people deep down don't think they can be an entrepreneur. And without more training, they're probably right. But most people understood that they could be a freelancer. And the challenge, and I'm just guessing that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are freelancers. But the challenge is not to say, how do I build a job without a boss where I get none of the benefits of having a job and all of the hassle, where I have to like fit in the most, come up with SEO words to get picked on Upwork and be cheaper and instead say, how can I bring art to my work? So I'm the one and only. So that someone asks for me by name and where there is no substitute, that will mean you have to fire a whole bunch of your clients. Because we will judge you by who you don't work for. We will judge you by the promises you refuse to make. And if you don't like what's on your to-do list, then it's on you because you pick bad clients. And that's agency by definition right there. You have a choice. It also has dignity to it that, again, you get to choose and your clients either look at you fondly or not so much, depending upon how you serve them and the people that are looking out from the outside of that client and freelancer relationship. Yes, exactly right. One of the other things that you say is that significance is inconvenient. I'm curious as to why you say that. Okay, so Tim Wu wrote an essay about convenience, and I've tried to persuade him to turn it into a book, but he's too busy changing the world. What he argues is that in modern Western culture, we have traded anything available for more convenience. We traded our health, we traded our mental health, we've traded our freedom, and our privacy. If someone says, you can have this thing on the internet, but you have to click this button to give away all this other stuff, we click it instantly. Whatever we can do for more convenience. And convenience, its best friend is industrial marketing. They go together, right? When it's more convenient to do a certain kind of work, an industry pushes for that work to happen because it's the confluence of time and output. But when we think about anything in our lives that has ever truly mattered to us, whether it's the best Thanksgiving dinner you ever had or a jazz concert that touched you deeply or the day you fell in love. These were all inconvenient events. So when we think about what's the most convenient way for me to get my work done, what's the most convenient thing for me to say? For me, after Permission Marketing was a hit, I should have written the Permission Marketing Handbook and Permission Marketing Volume 2 and then started MailChimp And the other things, I would have made way more money, but being convenient wasn't what I was after. 
that's the fork in the road. And when you see a fork in the road, you should probably take it. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. One of the other things that you say is that every revolution that has come before us, that has one thing in common, and that it's inconvenient. It's, it's kind of, you know, the born out of necessity, in other words. Revolutions destroy the perfect before they enable the impossible. If we think about the world we live in now, compared to just 15 years ago, it has destroyed so many things that were perfect. The taxi business was perfect. The conference business was perfect. You knew exactly how to do it, and it was going to turn out predictable output. And then impossible things happen. Like you and I are having this conversation. I don't even know where you are, right? So we're going to see new impossible things happen. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we want to be a victim of those things or do we want to find the agency to make those things and do ones we're proud of? One of the things that really resonated with me was as you were going through, you talk about how real value moving forward isn't created by the traditional measures of productivity. So my ears perked up immediately with this being about a productivity and a productivity podcast, that real value is created by creative solutions and innovation and resilience and personal interactions, obviously taking notes on all those to do episodes on them in the future. And I thought that's a great call out because we don't, I mean, it's again, it's not the widget cranking and how many did you crank kind of measurement anymore. It's not word count it's measured in human quality or quantity of human quality, even if we want to go that route, I guess. Yeah, I had a, a small crisis at the end of March. I made a 20-minute podcast in 10 minutes. And one wonders how you can do that because I don't have guests on my podcast. And the way I did it 
was I asked ChatGPT four questions and then I copied the answers into 11labs.io and it had been trained in my voice. It's so good at my voice, my wife cannot tell that it's not me. I'm not exaggerating. And then I just hit process and it made a podcast. Now, by almost any measure, being able to make a 20-minute podcast with 10 minutes of work and preparation is a productivity home run. But if I did it twice, my podcast would be over, useless. No one would ever listen to it again. Doing it once was a bold human act that took hours of study and thought before I could pull the trigger. But doing it twice turns me into a cog and a hack. And we're just going to keep seeing that happen over and over again. You're like, yeah, I give the, the example of a barista. The way that Starbucks is training more and more people to be baristas is press the green button and then move this cup over to here and collect the money. But the loyal customers of the place next door in a blind taste test probably can't tell that the indie coffee is better. But what they can tell is that when they walk in there and a human being looks them in the eye and remembers they were sad yesterday and smiles at them today, that is worth more than the cup of coffee. And we need that as humans because otherwise it's going to be like that movie Wally. We're just going to be stuck in our house with robots bringing us food as we work our way up to 700 pounds. You mention a word in the book, a Japanese word. I hope I pronounce this right. Is it Kokoro? Perfect. Nope. You said it perfectly. I'm, I don't speak Japanese. I called up uh, a few people I know who do speak Japanese and they said that we're both pretty close. So you're fine. What you're talking about right now makes me think of that. It makes me think of this whole AI thing. It's a struggle that has come up many, many times before. We're just seeing it again and remembering it, or maybe not remembering the previous times it's come through. I think one of the things that makes sense here, though, is to lean in on, and I think this is what you're talking about and why I bring this word up, is that the meaning of the word is heart and spirit and mind and self and None of those things are in an AI or a computer. And so it's not about replacing jobs per se. It's about leaning in on what humans do best as humans. Yes. And here we can get to the heart of the problem, which is so many of us yearn for that feeling of kokoro, of heart, of presence, of reality, of mattering. But we have been indoctrinated from a young age to avoid responsibility at every corner because responsibility leads to blame and blame leads to being ostracized by the industrial complex, which leads to losing your home and starving to death. So when there's a moment where you can take responsibility, our brain jumps all the way to, but then I'll starve to death. And if you're not willing to take responsibility, it's unlikely someone's going to give it to you. And if you take responsibility, then you've made a promise. And it's keeping that promise that enables us to bring our humanity to work. Bringing humanity to work is a great way to call it because I couldn't help but think of the car wash example that you give. And it, that's, that's so heartwarming in so many ways. And actually, just tell the story. I don't, I don't know why I'm getting in the way here. No, you're not in the way. Thomas Dorsey's brother was born with what can be called autism. And as he entered his 20s, Thomas realized that his brother was never going to get a job. And he said to his father, who was pretty successful, I'd like to figure out how to build a job where people like my brother can work. And he then learned how to be in the car wash business and then built a car wash where 
people who were not neurotypical could thrive. So the thing that's fascinating about the story is that the car wash makes a ton of money and that the second car wash that they opened turned a profit after less than 60 days. That customers drive past other car washes to get to this car wash because of the way they are treated by the staff. And the staff treats people that way because they are given the leeway to treat people well. The punchline to the story is you don't have to feel bad for artistic people. All you have to realize is if you want to build any business that's decent in by any measure, it has to be good enough that people will pass other businesses to get to yours. He just found a way to bring humanity to a business that is by its nature a bath for cars, not even for people, right? But the human who is driving the car knows they're getting more for their money when they are treated with this sort of love and care. And so the question I want to ask folks is, well, then why would you open the other kind of car wash? Why would you work at the other kind of car wash? Why is your business like the industrial car wash? We have enough car washes. We don't have enough humanity. It goes back to those two words again of dignity and agency. And it's it's yes. not just the car wash giving those to the people that are there as part of the team or the choir that is singing the song of significance together there. It's that everybody else that comes in contact and drives through hears the song and sees the agency and the dignity that is being given there. And they then receive it too. And it starts to reverberate louder and farther. Right. There's a hunger that we have that we're struggling to satisfy. And while all this is going on, the news makes a profit by making us unhappy. And industry makes a profit by poisoning the place where we live. And so it's so easy to get overwhelmed by those two things and decide, screw it, it doesn't matter anyway. And there's a sense of, of nihilism that kicks in. It's totally unhelpful. In fact, there are more rich people on earth than ever before. The average person on this planet has more power and tools than the King of France did, the last King of France. And so we have this moment when we have no excuse, in fact, an obligation to make things better. Because if we don't, we're not going to get another chance. And, you know, I built the Carbon Almanac with hundreds of other people around the world, all as volunteers. And what many of them said it was, it was the best project of their life. It changed my life to do it. And I have now to compare every single day going forward to that. Because if I can't top that, why am I bothering to phone it in? Why don't we just get back to the best job we ever had. It's kind of impossible to do alone, though, I think is what we're saying here, right? Yeah. It's incumbent upon not just, again, someone individually to be a linchpin. It's incumbent upon all of us to start to realize we're all at the same place and we all realize we're all at the same place and it's going to move the needle this time. I couldn't help but think of it comes up often when I look at all these different kind of prescriptive slash, you know, this is the way it ought to be type books that I keep thinking. It's like defensive driving. When I was teaching my daughter to drive and and I had confidence in her driving, she said, you don't think I'm a good driver. You don't trust me. And I'm like, no, that's not it. You're a great driver. It's everybody else I don't trust. And I think we're getting to the point, though, where so many people are getting on board they realize work doesn't work anymore the way it used to or ever did really to a certain extent. And that's why you get to this point where 
we're talking about businesses that wash cars. And another great example, actually, that you gave is Automatic, the place that creates WordPress that so much of the internet runs on. And I know people that work at Automatic and WordPress. And even years ago, it talked to two of them, two of my friends on this very show about their experience there and how it was innovative and and honestly, a model of what you're talking about in so many ways. And I'm I'm glad the rest of the world's finally catching up with WordPress. Yeah. I mean, Matt is an extraordinary guy. He has 2,000 employees and they don't have an office. They don't use email, except in very specific circumstances. They have a reading and writing culture. You show your work. You make promises to other people and you keep them. You figure out how to make things better and then you go do it. You know, the enormous leverage of software enables them to pull this off, but it still works for a car wash too. So I'm not sure software is the answer, but at the very same time this is going on, there are billionaires in San Francisco who are gleefully firing their employees in public and acting like jerks and getting applauded because some people think that power gives you the right to be inhuman. And I'm just not buying it. And I think that I know that people who meet Matt say, what? This guy runs the company that built 40% of the internet? Because it doesn't come across. What comes across is he is trying to create the conditions for people who are on a mission to be able to accomplish what they seek to accomplish. If you can help people get what they know they want, a lot of them will follow you. Like you said earlier, there's a big difference between management and leadership or managers and leaders. And I think we're seeing a lot of examples publicly of managers, not necessarily leaders, but there's a big difference there. And, and I think it, you know, it comes down to managers manage humans as resources and leaders lead teams and teams, independent of what each person's role is, they function together. That's one of the reasons why I'm very excited about the mental and or just psychological shift that this book, I think, is going to really bring about. Yeah, and we need people like you to narrate what that productivity rubric is like to be a useful member of a team. Is it okay for one person who's working at a restaurant to say to a person at the same level, you know, I saw how you were selling that bottle of wine it might be interesting to try it this way instead. Because in an industrial setting, you would never say that, right? But in a team setting, if enrollment is there, it happens immediately. It's criticize the work, don't criticize the worker. That teams have to do that. So the reason that the space shuttle crashed was because no one was willing to speak up when they had power about frozen O-rings. Because the dynamic that was established wasn't a team dynamic. It was an industrial dynamic. Look out for yourself. Don't offend your boss. Real teams don't act that way. They figure out how to mutually enroll in a journey and they support each other to get there because that's what makes it a team. I love that as we're getting near the back end of the book, there are pieces that jump out and it's not just about Here's the context. Here's how things ought to be. It's then literally walking through and showing examples, like we've mentioned with the car wash, like we've mentioned with automatic. And one of the ones that really stood out to me was Zapier, where they had a, a no meetings week. And what the outcome was from that was amazing. Yeah. I mean, a meeting 
in most industrial settings, ignores the fact that Zoom eliminates geography and ignores the fact that a pre-recorded video eliminates time. Instead, they're just using it as a cudgel to take attendance to make sure people working from home aren't doing their dry cleaning. And it's about the boss who has power prattling on, listening to themselves talk, and then excusing people at the end when it wasn't a meeting at all. It was a lecture. The alternative is to say, your time and your enrollment are at least as valuable as mine. So let's figure out how to asynchronously dance with each other. And then when we need to actually have a conversation, we'll have a conversation. But there are very few times we actually have to have a meeting. And so when Zapier did this and moved each previously synchronized waste of time attendance taking into an asynchronous responsibility-based engagement, it turns out that I think the stat was more than 80% of the people involved said they exceeded their goals for the week compared to what it used to be. And that didn't surprise me at all. Because finally, we just got out of people's way and let them be a human. Instead of saying, I need to remind you that I am your manager. I don't ever feel like a reminder from my manager ever has been helpful (laughs) in my life. Leadership is, on the other hand, very good, very good. I, I think one of the other things that really stands out to me is that as the book closes out, there's two key pieces to me. One is you're listing off different, uh, actually, this is more the middle of the book, but I'm remembering it as later because it talks about the significance commitments, things that are good and okay. It's, it's almost like the list of if you're living in a new world of work and you are singing the song of significance as part of a choir, as part of an organization that is intentionally doing that, this is kind of the prescribed, like, this is what it's going to look like. You're going to see this. You're going to see this. You're going to see mistakes as a way forward is one that comes to mind. One of the other ones that really stands out is that tension is not the same as stress. Unpack that one for a a little bit here. So for people who haven't gotten the book yet, and the book exists so you will have a conversation about it. That's why it's a book because they lend themselves to that. I'm not saying we need free snacks and bosses that don't care about output. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying this is hard work worth doing. So stress is a human feeling when we want to do two things at the same time, stay and go, speak and not speak, get along, have an argument. Stress can wear people out. It can wear us down to a nub. Stress is not good. Tension, on the other hand, is what engineers call it when you pull a rubber band back before you let go, if it's going to shoot across the room. You can't have music or play or much of anything important without tension. The tension of will this work? The tension of what happens next? The tension of how do we get to the next step? And in our desire to avoid stress, we tend to think we should be avoiding tension. I think one of the best ways to avoid stress is to embrace tension, to be able to say, this might not work is part of the deal. So I'm not stressed about this new book coming out because if no one buys it, no one buys it. That's why I have a publishing partner. That stress of wishing it to be something that it might not be, not my problem. But the tension of, I'm going to talk about this a little differently today to see if it lights somebody's eyes up, that gets me out of bed in the morning. So what we find with successful creators of any kind is that they cause tension and they look for tension. But if they're going to do it for a while, they have to figure out how to do that without stress. Closing out the book, you've got 
two different things that happen, I notice. One is you kind of recap and encapsulize the essence of the conversation had thus far and even some thought prompts laid out along the way as we're reading. But then also you've got this great thing that I think is amazing is you've got this encyclopedia of real skills broken down into five categories. And I couldn't help but notice that one of them was productivity and that even like a subhead there was, are you skilled with your instrument? And I can't tell you how thankful I am that you phrased it that way because it really kind of gave me something to latch onto there in the end, going through all the skills, but specifically the ones that are categorized under productivity and looking at them through that lens of how skilled can I be with my instrument, whether that's my human beingness, the Kokoro, or my skills that I have versus some other human and so forth. So thank you for that. I think that's a really cool place to land the plane as far as the conversation goes. As the conversation starts, I should say, because that's the closing of the book and that's the way we start talking about it, right? Yeah, exactly. That we would like to believe that skills are unattainable or outside of our available reach. But what you have taught so many of the people who follow you, like learning to juggle, if you learn how to throw, the catches will take care of themselves. If you adopt a mindset of getting better at these human skills, these attitudes, because I think productivity is an attitude, it will happen. But first you have to try. And if you have the mindset, understandably, that the industrialist is going to take all they can, so you should give them as little as you can get away with, then it's easy to avoid getting good at something. I'm just not good at computers. But if your mindset is, this is my instrument and I'm going to play it all day, then who else but you is going to figure out how to get better at it? It's a great place to stop, I think. As of this recording, the book is out today and the conversations have already started, but now they pick up steam. And you know, usually I'm like, hey, Seth, Thanks for being here. Where can people find the book? But I think so many people that are listening to this already are aware of you. So, and they know I'll just go to Amazon or, you know, their favorite bookstore and they will pick it up. I highly encourage people to do that. Is there anything else that you want to kind of close this conversation out on? So I've been posting a bunch of videos, short ones, Seth.blog slash song. So if I want to have the last word, that's how I will have it. But I guess what I would say is, It's people like you and the people who listen to you that are going to be the engine of our next chapter. So let's write something that we are proud of. I am so honored that you would take the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Well, likewise, honored as well. Seth, thank you so much for being here. Hopefully we will talk again in the near future. Thanks for doing this. Looking forward to it. Go make a ruckus, everybody. Thanks. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Seth Godin as much as I did having it with him. If you found this conversation helpful, thought-provoking, any of those things, do me a favor and do Seth a favor and do someone else a favor by thinking of that person and saying, you know what, this Song of Significance book feels like something that my boss or my team members need to read and then discuss it with them. You can find links for the book in the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com or just hit the share button wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. Thank you again for sharing. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next episode.